Scripture reading this morning continues in the Gospel of Matthew in the second chapter. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. So take your Bibles and open them. Let's be attentive to God's Word together. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it was stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone... An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. May God bless to our understanding. This is the reading of His Holy Word this morning. Amen. Well, many people are recovering from Christmas. Which begs the question, doesn't it? Why do we need to recover from Christmas? What does it say about a celebration when you have to recover from it? Well, the aftermath of Christmas can have a lot of trauma in it. Trauma is what we experience when we feel overwhelmed. Trauma is what we experience when uh, we have upsetting emotions or we don't always totally feel safe. Maybe you're feeling trauma from all the post-Christmas stuff going on. Maybe uh, you're feeling trauma from all the family drama of being together as you're with your family. Maybe you're feeling trauma in this post-Christmas time about the debt you incurred for all those gifts that you bought for people. doesn't look so good now, does it? Maybe you feel uh, trauma in the running back to overcrowded stores to exchange all the gifts. The days after Christmas can be traumatic. They certainly were in the days after Jesus, the child, was born. You know, as lovely and as wondrous and as romantic as the birth of the child 
And the story of the child being born was the birth of this child causes a lot of trauma. A group of men called the Magi. They see a star in the east and they realize the king of the Jews has been born and they want to worship him. The problem is that there is already a king over the Jews and he has deep insecurity issues. And his name is Herod. It says when King Herod heard that a king had been born, he was disturbed. Some Bibles read that word, he was terrified. And all Jerusalem is disturbed with him. All Jerusalem is disturbed because, first of all, a caravan of magi come into Jerusalem so they know something is up. Second, when the king is disturbed, that means everybody's probably going to be disturbed. You know the saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Well, the king is disturbed and bad things might happen. Thus begins trauma post-Christmas. Now, there have been many embellishments to the event of the Magi searching for Christ. Many, many embellishments. One of them is that we call them the wise men. That's an embellishment. The King James Version of the Bible and older versions of the Bible use that term, wise men. But uh, the biblical Greek term is Magi. Um, Wise men is kind of a dumbed-down way of talking about these men. Uh, the Greek word is magoi. Our English word magician comes from that word. It's rooted in that word. Wise men, that's one embellishment that's come. They aren't wise men, they're magi. Second, tradition has believed that there were three magi. Perhaps because people have deduced, well, there were three gifts that were offered. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. One for each. Therefore, there were three magi who came to Jesus. But the text doesn't say this. Perhaps there were five. Maybe there were ten. Maybe there were a hundred. Wouldn't that be a scene? A hundred magi coming and bowing down before Jesus the child. And then these men were thought to be kings. They, they came to be kings. I don't know who made them kings, but they made them kings. And we sing, we three kings of Orient are, which we're going to spare you this morning from having to sing. But the thought that the Magi were kings probably came from a reading of Isaiah 60, which says this, Isaiah 60, verse 3, Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Herds of camels will cover your land and all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. And then these three wise men, these three kings got names. How did they get names? Um, Melchior, king of Persia. Second one was named Gaspar, king of India, and Balthazar, king of Arabia. And so the embellishments have grown about these magi. But none of these things come from the gospel text in Matthew. What we have is this, magi from the east. They're magi from the east. And the east could be Persia, could be Arabia, could be Maryland for all we know. But they're just from the east. When we read the Bible, we need to be careful. This is, a, this is a Bible reading rule. We need to be careful about putting more in there than is there. It's okay to imagine. It's okay to deduce. It's okay to surmise. But we need to have a disciplined reading. Otherwise, we end up with Christmas cards with three wise men on camels with three gifts. Or we get ties with three wise men on camels carrying gifts looking like this. 
which I'm going to take off. The reason I'm going to take off, I'm going to pass it around. I wear this tie once a year. Someone gave it to me. It has the three, it's my wise men tie. I'm a lousy model. I don't want 80 people coming up to me after the congregation, after the worship service saying, let me see that tie, Phil. You guys can just pass it around. Can you make sure everybody gets a good look at that, Steve? Thank you. Who were the Magi? Well, we obviously know that they knew something about stars and they paid attention to stars and they found messages in the heavens. It's thought their religion and their philosophy emphasized kind of a mixture between what we would call astronomy and astrology. Now, on the one hand, the Bible affirms that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, which includes the stars, which includes the galaxies, which includes the solar system. He knows all the stars by name. The heavens tell of the glory of God. And Jesus, when speaking of the soon-to-be destruction of Jerusalem in his time, says there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars. So Jesus even speaks about being able to see things up there. But on the other hand, this doesn't give us license into getting into astrology or starting to live by horoscopes. The Bible is complete in its condemnation of divination and sorcery. In just one example, in Isaiah 43, the Lord calls out to the Babylonian astrologers. He, he says to his people, Let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Let them save you for what is going to come upon you. The word for magi refers to people who were into divination, who were into sorcery. Israel thought of magi as idolaters. They were far outside of Israel and the worship of the people of God. They were part of the despised, what they called the nations or the Gentiles. The larger biblical term for those who are not part of Israel, not part of the chosen people of God, is Gentile or nations. And the Greek uh, biblical word for that is ethnoi. And Israel was quite convinced that the ethnoi were on the outs with God. Yet we see the Magi being led by God through their knowledge of the stars, and they are the only ones who are searching for Jesus. They're the only ones. We can be open to the natural order. I think of the example of Native American people who, quite frankly, do pay attention to the patterns of the earth and, and, and the rhythms of, of what goes on around them. People in other cultures, particularly those who live very close to nature, much more than we do in the technological, scientific, industrial West, are able to pick up things, what's happening in the world, in the natural order. Things we don't see, things we don't comprehend. The Magi were able to see patterns in the stars. That's okay, as long as we understand God is over the created order and that everything that He has created is under His authority and that second, we understand it doesn't mean and it's not good to start running your life by the stars. That's astrology. Perhaps Matthew is trying to say to us that God is sovereign over the natural order. Just like he told us in chapter 1, God is sovereign over all of history. God can work through the stars. God can work through anything He wants to because He's the Maker and Lord of heaven and earth, which pretty much includes everything. Dale Bruner teaches that the theological meaning of Matthew's star is that every expectation is fulfilled in Jesus. Not only that of the Old Testament, but the expectation of the entire natural world. 
Here is the world king whom all await. The Magi were led to Jerusalem by a star. But notice how God reveals himself to them in this passage. It's not just a star. Everybody gets hung up on the star. The star is important. And God uses that part of creation to guide them. But that is what we would call natural revelation. But natural revelation in the creative, created order is not enough to find Christ. The Magi needed the revelation of God's Word. They needed the revelation of God's Word to be led to Bethlehem. The heavens, the mountains, the wonders of God's creation can tell us a little bit. They can tell us that there's a Creator. They can tell us, well, there's a God there. But they can't tell us what God is like or specifically who this God is. That's where we need the Scriptures. We need God's Word to give specificity to who this God is that we worship and what He is like. The Magi find that needed scriptural revelation in the book of Micah. Herod calls together the religious leaders, the Bible teachers. They have a Bible study, and they say, well, we have this thing here in the book of Micah. Micah's prophecy about a ruler being born in Bethlehem. This had been read as a messianic prophecy. And that leads the Magi to the place where Jesus is. Notice they come to a house. Not a manger, not an inn. They come to a house. Jesus, Mary, Joseph have moved on from that temporary one, two-night shelter, and they are now in a better shelter. These events have probably taken place over a period of weeks, even a period of months. It isn't just the day after Jesus' birth. But from the natural revelation of the star to the specific revelation of the Scriptures, the Magi are led to the saving revelation of Jesus Christ. All God's revelation is meant to lead us to a saving knowledge of His Son. Everything points to Christ. When these Magi, these Gentiles, these ethnoi, these outsiders, see the child and his mother Mary, it says, they bow down and they worship Him. They bow down and they worship Him. Notice it doesn't say they congratulated themselves. There weren't high fives all around. It doesn't say they asked a bunch of questions. It doesn't say that they attempted to get something from Him. As a matter of fact, they gave something to Him. But it says they bowed down and they worshipped Him. Right and wrong worship gets exposed in Matthew chapter 2. They bow down and worship Him. As Matthew tells the story of Jesus in his Gospel, Throughout the 28 chapters of Matthew's Gospel, it is very interesting to pay attention to who bows down and worships Jesus. It is very interesting. A man with leprosy came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus does heal that kneeling man. A Gentile ruler comes and kneels, be- a Gentile ruler comes and kneels before Jesus because his daughter has died and he wants Jesus to give life to his daughter. And Jesus comes and He raises her. In the midst of a storm, Jesus comes walking on the water towards His disciples. Peter does a little walk on the water too. He's not able to stay up because he loses faith. But after Jesus saves him and they're both safely in the boat, we read that those who were in the boat worshipped Him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. A Canaanite woman 
Again, Canaanites, they were outsiders. They were even enemies of Israel. Comes and kneels before Jesus, asking the Lord, whom she calls the son of David, to have mercy on her and heal her suffering daughter. He does this for her. When the, woman who, when the women go to the burial place of Jesus, expecting to find his body, see Jesus alive, they clasp his feet and they worship him. And when Jesus gathers his disciples on the mountain, the place where he said to meet him after he rose from the dead, it says they worshiped him. Those who bow down before Jesus and worship Him are those who truly recognize who He is. Matthew, I think, is telling us in his Gospel that the appropriate response to Jesus is to kneel down and to worship. I don't know if church membership is going to be good enough for Matthew. I don't know if confirmation would be good enough for Matthew. I don't know if a verbal profession of faith, just saying, I believe these things, would be good enough for Matthew. I don't know if Bible knowledge would be good enough for Matthew. I think Matthew is saying until you become a worshiper, a worshiper of Jesus Christ, you're not in. You're not in. Today there's a uh, popular move of people who want to be serious about Jesus to intentionally, intentionally not call themselves Christians. Uh, As if Christian is a bad word. Christian has two... Uh, many negative associations historically, they would say. And, and even today it has negative associations. I mean, who wants to be uh, thought of as those guys who we see on TV sometimes and the things they do? Or who, who wants to be associated with the Crusades and all the terrible things that happened there? Or uh, who wants to be associated with dry, traditional Christianity, even church buildings? My gosh. So these people use a different term. They call themselves Christ followers. As a substitute for a Christian to distinguish between, I guess, a real Christian and someone who's less than that or different than that. I've got to tell you, I still haven't given up on the term Christian. Uh, But then I've always been slow to catch on to trends. And uh, I have a very low score on the cool meter. But nevertheless, I still call myself a Christian. But while people, while Jesus did call people to follow him, you've got to give that. And while... uh, To call oneself a Christ follower isn't necessarily bad. It is a little vague. It's pretty vague. I mean, it can mean that you're just checking Christ out. It can mean you're just reading some things of His teachings. It can mean that you're hitting a church service once in a while. But it doesn't suggest any permanent commitment. And it could be that once it gets inconvenient, once it doesn't fit your style, you might abandon which is exactly what happened to many, many people in the Bible who were hanging out with Jesus, who were following Jesus. And once he began to put down some serious boundaries, once he began to talk about hard things like his cross and talking about the commitment it was going to take, that's exactly what happened. Some people who were following him turned tail and left him and say, this is too much for us, we're done with you. But I do like the term Christ worshiper. Because if you're a Christ worshiper, it means that you've gone beyond just merely intellectual assent and saying, well, I have certain faith and certain principles. Because it's so easy in 21st century United States to say, I believe in Christ, but I still basically worship myself. 
To be a Christ worshiper suggests a commitment of life. Who and what we worship is our life. Whatever we worship, that's our life. And it means I have bowed down to whoever and whatever it is I worship, to that person. Well, to be a worshiper of Christ means I've become subservient to Him. I surrender myself to Him. He's the center. He is the Lord. And I am not. And I've quit myself. And I've allowed Him to be all. In Matthew's Gospel, people who recognize Christ for who He is, His power and His person, and have faith in that, they have a real encounter with Him, and they bow down. They get low before Him, on their knees, and they worship Him. That's what the Magi do. Who would have guessed that such outsiders who didn't even worship in the temple, they'd never been in the temple, who didn't know the Hebrew Scriptures, who'd never been to vacation Hebrew school, who would have guessed that these who were shunned by Judaism would be the first ones to go, to seek, to worship the Christ? How interesting that the chief priests, the teachers of the law, who learned the Scriptures, did not recognize, did not bother to search out that word of Micah about Bethlehem. They did not act on what they knew. Apparently, biblical knowledge is not enough. Christ is a person. He needs to be known personally. He is to be sought out. He is to be encountered. He is to be worshipped. Worshipped. I think the search of the Magi tells us something about who will respond to the Gospel. We must preach Christ to all people because we cannot always predict who's going to hear the message and who isn't, and who's going to respond to the message and who isn't. Herod and the Jews will eventually seek Jesus' death. Those like the Magi, who we least expect to come to know and honor Christ, are the ones who do. Even the most pagan of pagans may respond to Christ if they're given the opportunity. You just never know who's going to come to Christ. Matthew's Gospel is famous for ending with what we call the Great Commission, those great words when Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations, of all Gentiles, of all ethnos, and baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. God wants to reach people. And it doesn't matter how insignificant or how strange that person or that group of people are. God desires His love and grace to be known through Jesus Christ for everybody, for new agers and agnostics, for Mormons and Protestants and Jews, for rich corporate executives and people living in a low income, for, great pe- for, for, for gay people, for straight people, for Buddhists, for Muslims, for intellectuals, for people who are scientifically inclined. He wants all to come and bow down and worship Him and His messages for them. The invitation of the Magi shows, I think, the deep mercy of God, that the Gospel ends with the Great Commission to the nations, and it begins here at Christmas with a surprise invitation of all the nations and indeed, of what many considered the nation's worst element, those magi. Who would have guessed? Jesus is for all people. Again, He is the for all of us God. For all of us.
but, but, not everybody responds like the Magi. There are Herods in the world. Next Sunday, the post-Christmas trauma intensifies with King Herod's response to Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, lead us to You. When we find You, give us the grace and the humility to bow down and worship You. Never let us limit how You will find us or whom You will find. For You came for the whole world, even us. Amen.